Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Ilya. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jeremy. How are you, man? Good. I'm really excited to uh, have you because you've been such a prolific founder uh, in Southeast Asia. And so I'm really excited to share your journey and what you've learned along the way. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here. Happy to share some insights for the upcoming founders. Yeah, awesome. So for those who don't know yet, how would you introduce yourself professionally? My name is Ilya. I'm the CEO of Pouch Nation and founder Actually, I've, uh, this Posh Nation is my second slash third startup, so I've been a serious, serious entrepreneur. I started my career in uh, management consulting and then uh, decided at a certain point that it was not for me and been an entrepreneur already for about 10 years, mainly based out of Southeast Asia. Awesome. i got to ask, as a fellow ex-management consultant, why did you do management consulting in the early days? I graduated my university in Milan, was a business school, and as in every business school, they push you to have a high first salary that's good for the rankings of every business school. <laughs> so it's a lot better than being an entrepreneur in that sense for, for the rankings. So uh, anyway, and um, we've, myself and a lot of my friends have been interviewing for a lot of management consulting role, and I, I thought it was uh, an exciting way to start my career where the learning curve would be pretty good. So, and on the other hand, you know, I was still young, wanted to travel, see many different things. At that time, I was still based in Italy. I got this offer from a, from a boutique consulting firm specialized in uh, TMD, so telecoms, media, and digital. And they offered me a position to go and move from, from Italy to South Africa. So, you know, how can I say no, right? It's just sounds exciting. Right? When you're just finished university, you go to a whole different continent, discover a lot of new things. So I just right, jumped right into it. Could you share about how the startup bug bit you? So yeah, I was in consulting by that time, I think already maybe like three, four years. This is where you know you start seeing like repetitive stuff. So slides over slides. Then you start like looking around and say, okay, what else is there for me? So I had a basically a choice either to do an MBA or a lot of my my colleagues decided to go for or or do something else. But MBA didn't make sense for me too much because I already had two master's degrees in, in you know in business. So it was like I thought it was an overkill. So I said, okay, instead of spending like a hundred thousand dollars for an MBA, I might just spend a hundred thousand dollars on a startup and 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 hope that the learning is gonna be as good. So I took it really just as a as as a learning experience at the beginning. And I think the moment I decided to be a founder was, I think it was 2012, when Instagram got bought for $1 billion with 16 employees. I mean, many people don't remember that, but I still remember the news. It kind of hit me hard. So I said, look, it's time to explore something interesting. It's time to get the hands dirty. And uh, and this is where it all began. And tell us more about your first startup that you built. So, yeah, so my first startup was, was quite interesting. So it was very early in the day, so 2012. I was living in Singapore at the time, and um, myself and two of my colleagues from the consulting, we decided to resign all of us together. And uh, we're looking at different ideas of what can be done in the digital space and also different markets. And we already decided at that time that Indonesia you know, was the market. 
I left Singapore, moved to Indonesia. And the first startup was really digitizing the F&B space. So basically what we're doing is uh, substituting the, the paper loyalty card, you know, the punch cards where you get like, you buy a coffee, you get a stamp, you get 10 stamps, you get a coffee for free. We're digitizing, basically putting it on an app and um, you could go and, you know, purchase your coffee, scan a QR code and collect your stamp in a digital way. And, uh, and we started doing that in 2012 in Indonesia, which was way before any e-wallets or any QR codes at till point. So we were like the, the pioneers in that sense. And indeed, at that time, 70% of the market share was uh, on BlackBerry. So our first app was on BlackBerry. It's like now, if I remember, it was it's really interesting. So yeah, so we've been doing that and uh, had a good success on the merchant side. So we managed to get about 800 merchants on our platform. But it was very difficult on the customer engagement side. So we just needed more and more funding. And at that time, there was no VCs, very few, I think. East Venture was already there. I think it was maybe four or five VCs and everybody was writing like checks of $20,000. <laughs> so that, that was kind of the time. So that's, that's, that was about my first startup. Yeah, time flies. I, yeah, I still remember those days when I had, was carrying my BlackBerry in 2012. Correct. And everybody was sharing their codes to BBM each other. Yeah, and, and Indonesia was, uh, I think BlackBerry Messenger was the number one country in the world by the, the usage of BlackBerry Messenger. Indeed, afterwards, Mtech even bought it out from BlackBerry. So it was interesting. Yeah. And so what happened? So from there, you're saying that you know, you're struggling with the finding side to get the user acquisition, which is, I think, the tough part for a lot of these places where you have you know two sides of the marketplace to really go after. So tell us more about what happened. Yeah, so look, I mean, uh, we so we realized, and this is something that also first, probably first mistake, and, and, and it's good to talk about mistakes, right? Because a lot of, you know, people who listen to this podcast will probably think about them more. So I think the first mistake, and in our sense, was that we thought, okay, the more merchants we acquire, the more the customers will follow because the merchants will promote this loyalty program. And, and that was our key assumption. So our, our key efforts was really not really on the consumer side, but more just to acquire merchants because the merchants were paying us. And we said, okay, fine, the more we have it, the, the, the more it's going to be used. And, and that was a mistake because eventually the owners of those coffee places, they were on board, but the staff in the stores were not on board. So what happened is that we, we got a lot of traction on the, on the merchant side, but didn't get the traction on the consumer side. So I think that was a key lesson learned at that time. We did that We did that startup for, I think, about a year and a half, close to two. And at a certain point, we decided like we could not, and we already expanded actually in two markets by that time. So we had presence in Indonesia and in Philippines. Philippine operations were a bit better because we managed to got a big merchant with like 200 stores, but then it was almost break-even, but Indonesia was far from break-even. So we had to stop operations in Indonesia. And, and I had to go back to, to earn some money because I was like two years without salary. <laughs> and after a few years, it becomes really tough. So, so we kept a small development team in the Philippines and some operations in the Philippines. And I had to go really find a job. So that's, that, that's how it ends <laughs> very often when you start your first business. Yeah, that's a real reality for a lot of folks because you save up a year or two of savings. And then it's good if you can make it work. And if you can't make it work, it's not enough. It's tough, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look, and and nowadays it's it's a little bit easier to get the funding than it was at that time. At that time, it was literally like I think we got the total like sixty thousand dollars in funding. I mean, that was it, and that seemed a lot of money at that time. Now I, I think it's a lot different because the whole ecosystem is a lot more developed. So, so many angels, 
that can write you a quick check. So I think it's a little bit different, but um, it's a hard lesson learned. You, you need to make sure that you raise. If you don't raise, it's very hard that you keep a business going, especially in the early days. So let's talk a little bit about that chicken and egg dynamic because it's a classic problem. You haven't made it really work in one market and then you expand to a second market in the Philippines. And that's a very tricky pathing decision because one is like, hey, if we just keep growing and light up new markets, don't worry, the first market will figure out economics later as well. So it seems like you almost took away the lesson is that you got to fix the unit economics in one market first before you expand to a new market. At least that's, I guess I'm making a down arrow extrapolation from what you said. What do you think about what I just said? Yeah. I think it all depends on what business you're doing. So I think I would say in, in our and, and how big is the market size? So I think in, in our business, probably we did we did a mistake to go to Philippines too early because we haven't yet proven the model working very well in, in one market and we already decided to go to another one. But we you know we just there was an opportunity said why not and we did it. But for me, when I also you know mentor founders, uh, I'm also mentoring plug and play. So I always recommend look if you have if your market size is really big and in our case it was big. You know, F&B stores, coffee places, massive. You have to really crack the model in one place and then you can expand. But then obviously if we look at down the line the business that we launched afterwards, which was the business of events and and artists and concerts. So that was a different business because the market size in one country might not be as huge. It's also events are regional, people go on regional tours and artists do global tours. So you cover multiple countries in one goal. So I would say really look at what your business is and see how to approach that. So I wouldn't say it's only, there's always a written rule. It's kind of case by case. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's good advice for lots of founders. I guess today we'll call it failure, right? You know. But what was it like to go back to work? Because it sucks. I know a couple of founders went through that process. I was just wondering how you felt, your psychology. Yeah. Look, I think it's it's horrible. So what happened to me, and and I think, so I kind of I was realizing, yeah. So we we didn't manage to raise funds, and then um, basically we okay, what we had like we kept like maybe five six employees, and that was kind of self sustainable. But obviously, I understood that I. Uh, cannot not work and not get any income for a long time. So, But before looking for a job, I said, okay, I, I need to take some time off to just decompress and meet some people. So what I did is uh, I took two months and I went to, to the Valley and stayed there in one of those startup hostels just to meet with people, meet with more entrepreneurs and see. And, and that was actually very, let's say, relieving because I met a lot of founders and uh, you know they told me about their issues. And that was something very interesting. Because in Southeast Asia at that time, there were not that many founders and I, you, I felt very lonely. I said, okay, I'm the one who failed. But then, you know, once I went to the US, I found so many people that look, went through multiple startups, failed and did again. And that kind of gave me courage to pursue that down the line again once the circumstances arrived. So, so I had this kind of break and then um, I was approached by a few headhunters. I mean, I had a good CV and kind of the fact of doing a startup is, is, is actually a plus in many cases also seen by corporates. I got a role as a head of strategy, a head of commercial strategy in Excel Axiata, which is the second largest operator in telecom operator in Indonesia. So I said, okay, why not? Let's let's try it out. And uh, yeah, I was with them for about two years. So during that time when it sucked, how did you manage your psychology? I mean, you took a holiday, did you shop to France? How did you take a break? So that I think um, well, most important in those cases is to talk to other founders, because sometimes when you, especially your first time founder, you you don't realize that there's so many other founders that are going through similar issues. 
and it's that it's a constant struggle. And and this is something that at the beginning you are not aware of because you you come usually a lot of founders come from successful backgrounds like you know either from corporate or consulting, and they used to be always on top. And then when it's they launch the startup, then they get smashed. And and that for many people is very hard to to overcome. But uh, when if you start talking to your peers and you realize that that's normal, right? So startup is. It's very, very rare that you are all, you know, you're always all up and enthusiastic, etc. Right? It's it's actually a constant struggle, and you need to be able to live with that. If you cannot live with that, then that job is not for you. So basically, that's what I kind of started like talking to people and realizing it, and, and that helped me a lot, right? It helped me a lot to to understand. Look, I did it. It didn't work, but it doesn't mean that it's it's purely my fault, right? There's a lot of the things you start with an assumption. The market might not be ready. The funding situation might not be ready. And indeed, it was a lot of different factors in, that were into play, right? So timing is extremely important in, in, in starting your business. And that's what I also realized. So when it comes to you know talking to other founders, a lot of people who are not founders are wondering themselves, what do founders talk about when they're talking to each other? What, what, what do founders talk to each other about? Well, that's a, that's a good question, and uh, I think you you talk about the key topics that bother you, and usually the key topics are not that many. So one is obviously you know founders talk a lot about investors, <laughs> so that's something. <laughs> well, it's true, man, and, and because the thing is, I think also if we look at Southeast Asia compared to let's say U.S. etc., so U.S. obviously the the whole investment and venture capital scene is a lot more developed. So there's also a lot more kind of information and track record on on, on different investors, and it's very different here in Southeast Asia. So VCs just started to invest five, ten years ago max. So a lot of them they don't have clear track records, and uh, founders do talk a lot about which investors are good, which investors are bad. So that's one of the topics is very hot. The second one, I guess, is more on uh, product market fit. I think founders talk a lot about that. So whether companies really have that product market fit, because and you might have it in one market, might not have it in the other one. So that that's an, another key one. And I would say the third one that is often we talk about is, is people management. Because as a founder, the moment your startup starts growing, people management becomes a really important topic for you. Right, and might never been that important before, right? Because before, even if you worked in the corporate, maybe you're managing like five, ten people. But suddenly, if you have a startup and if you're funded, you're managing a hundred people. So that's a lot different. So that's, I think, another big topic that usually founders talk about. So they say, look, a good CEO needs to do two things: needs to be able to raise money and needs to be able to be good in 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 people management. All the rest will come. So those are the things that we chat about very often. Yeah, and that's interesting because there's almost like two types of people or stages, right? You just talked about the first stage is being the founder where you figure out product market fit. And then eventually you talk about becoming the CEO, whereas really about the desk fundraising and hiring is the most important skills. So, and that's something that you have seen for yourself because the first time around you're a founder and obviously CEO of a smaller company is looking for product market fit. And then there's something that you build up over time. Could you tell us a little bit more about what the difference is between being just a founder versus becoming not just a founder, but also a CEO of a growing team? So tell us more about that evolution or change. Yeah, 100%. And, and look, and to be honest with you, not everybody can, can grow from a founder role into a CEO role. Because those two roles are, are, are very different, and uh, you know, there's nothing bad about it if you can if you can't or don't want to be a CEO. So a founder is really somebody who 
comes with with a with a with a problem to solve and is full of creativity and and, and driving force to to kick that off and, and find that product market fit as you were saying right a, a CEO is who needs to deal with a lot of issues on a constant basis and manage a large organization. So obviously like the founder part, I would say it's more exciting to a certain degree because you are like discovering something new, you're launching something new. The CEO role is always very painful because you need to make sure that the machine is well oiled and uh, you know, it works well. And uh, and there's a lot of, you know, I always compare a startup like a sinking boat with a lot of different holes. So the question is, and you only have two hands. All you're doing is tapping those holes to make sure that to minimize the water coming in. And that's your constant work. And, and, and that becomes, uh, that's not for everybody, right? But that's the role also of the CEO and, and, and to, to kind of bring the organization forward and to grow it. Yeah. How should a founder think about managing their time? Because it's a tough one. There's all these things to do. You know, there's all these like larger things that you should get around to doing. And then if you suddenly become a bit more successful and investors start calling you or messaging you to talk, how do you go about managing time? How do you think about that? Look, I think managing time is, is, is very important. I think many people don't manage their time very well for different reasons. Some people are too detailed oriented, which, uh, you know, on a larger scale becomes very difficult because you just spend so much time going into details where you should be able to delegate. And there are some people who on the opposite are too high level so you know like they just they get some funding and they start like going to all the conferences making speeches and you know doing podcasts nothing bad about podcasts by the way but um, uh, they forget completely about the business so i think those are kind of the, like the issues that, that that i see right so how does a founder know what the best thing to do is like that's a tough one right yeah, so I think that I think that the balance. So what I would say is just to going back to the the question of time management. I think is to have the right balance between not overdoing it in terms of like being too micromanagement and also not overdoing it on the other side. So obviously, you know, there's a lot of tools that people use. I think one tool that I would recommend to everybody is before you start your week on Sunday, organize your week because that's that's extremely important. Organize your week, see which meetings you have which are the most important meetings, which meetings you can skip, and plan your day for five days ahead, your week, sorry. Right? This is what I, I plan it on Sunday, but don't plan it on Monday because you get a Monday and it's already too late. Right? Monday, you get bombarded by emails and you get dragged into things you don't want. So that's that's one like quick tip. The second tip is do a half an hour meetings in your agenda by default. Don't do a one hour meetings. It's always very easy to to, to talk more. Uh, it's very pleasurable, especially if you like your colleagues. But then you become extremely inefficient because instead of uh, you know how many meetings by of one hour you can fit. Thirdly, always think: Can you really add value in that meeting? All right, and if you can, then go for it. If not, then not. Right. So let, we know that in business, meetings is what kills your productivity. So in a good and a bad sense. So that's probably the key skill that you need to know if you want to be a good uh, in, in time management. Is what meetings to attend? How long do you want to attend them? And if you cannot contribute, just leave and make sure you have a culture where people can accept that. Right. So I think those are the practical tips. Probably I would I would give some young founders. I, you know, I think uh, the way I used to think about it was like. The difference between creator time and manager time. And creator time is when you get to focus for like one, two, three, four hours or something very deep. And then manager time is that what you just said. That crazy blitz of meetings with your one-on-ones or external stakeholders, which is a lot of work. 
Yeah, for sure. And and you need to balance also, as, as you're right, in terms of the, the thinking part versus the doing part. And uh, to be honest with you, the, the more and more you need to do, the thinking part is very important. It's because if you don't think, nobody else in your company, well, maybe your co-founders, but, you know, many few people will be doing thinking, right? Because everybody is there to execute. But sometimes you might realize that you're executing the wrong thing. And this is where I step back and take an afternoon, sit down, do some research yourself, right? Not necessarily with anybody else, but just think, okay, is this the direction really right one, right? Is, are my assumptions correct? Do I need to pause it? Do I need to redo it? And I do that pretty often, especially in the past, uh, I would say, 18 months of the pandemic, because it's a constant thinking. There's no, there's no kind of playbook for this. When you think about that playbook for folks, what advice do you normally give to the mentees that you're often working with? The thing is, like, there's no playbook because every circumstance is, is very different. But what you can basically try to do, so I always say, I always compare it in that way, right? So from where you start to the time when, you know, you're going to build a successful business, there's this gap of time. And this gap of time can be shorter or longer. What your goal is, is to make that, gap of time the shortest possible, right? From where you are now to becoming successful. And you need to think as a founder, okay, what are the what are the factors that will make me shorten that time? And obviously if you are just alone in isolation, you will do your own mistakes and the mistakes will make that time longer and longer. So now what happens is if you have support, if you have this podcast or if you have mentors, etc., there are some key points along this journey or key, you know, infliction points and, and those points where you need to have to ask others on what, ha- what did you do and what was your mistake that you did. So if you understand what are those critical points and at each point get a, a support from somebody who went through that journey, then you will be able to shorten that cycle from where you are to the success. And that's the key thing. And that's what I key advise my my mentees is that you can get there without any help just by trying and doing because this is how it is but uh, you want to get there faster and if you want to get there faster make sure that you understand what are those key points that you need to to validate it's about asking for help and asking questions sometimes i I would not be able to come and tell us start find out what he needs to do as long as he doesn't know what his pain points are so what the first thing i do is i ask you what are the most three big issues that you are facing at this point in time and usually the conversation starts around like the major problems that they're facing. And there we, we start to unravel and, and see what support can be. Yeah. So could you share some examples from your previous startups or the current one where there was some experiment that you had to run because you didn't know which way to go or what was that proof point you needed to shorten the time period? Yeah. What, what happens very often, especially if you are in like a, in a seed or pre-seed stage, so you, you start with an assumption in your head and you and uh, you think, okay, I, I think it's going to be that way, right? And usually founders, are, by definition, are very positive, right? And uh, enthusiastic and uh, optimistic. And that could be a positive thing, but also a negative one. So usually like, they come with this idea and they're super convinced that this idea is going to work. So an example for young founders is like when they have an assumption, and they're very convinced that that's the way to go, I usually tell them, look, that's fine. You're convinced of somebody and I'm not here to change your mind, but try to test your assumption within a period of time, let's say a month 
or uh, two months and see and look at the numbers, see how, what data comes out of it and whether your initial assumption is actually validated. So I, I was working with one of the startups, right, that had an assumption uh, that they wanted to place a, a physical box inside the factories for them to get their supplies instead of doing on-demand ordering. I said, fine, if that's what you think. I mean, obviously, from my experience, I, I thought that a physical asset will make the operations a lot more complicated and then the model not that scalable. But I said, look, if that's what you think, it's okay. Just try it out. And, you know, they tried it out and they understood that actually bringing this physical box, installing it inside a factory for them to get the supplies is just not very scalable and very painful. And, and the data showed that. So those are the experiments that you want to run, uh, when, especially at the beginning, because the risk is that sometimes if you're good at execution, you just go with the wrong idea and you go all the way in. And then six or seven or eight months time, you realize down the line that the business model is not the right one and you need to change. And that's where it becomes very painful. If you do it on a shorter cycle of one to two months, then you can be very agile and, and be able to adapt. So those experiments is usually what we run with founders to make sure that this product market fit makes sense. How do you mentor or help founders? Because there's always a very tricky conversation, right? So, Because I've been a founder who's talked to angels and other founders, and sometimes when I get feedback, I'm just like, Ugh, this guy doesn't get it, right? <laughs> this person, this woman does not get this at all. And other times I'm like, oh, okay, that makes a bit more sense. So what would you say, at least on someone who's giving the feedback, on, let's say that side of the conversation, what things should you be aware of? Or how should you frame things up? so that it doesn't come across as antagonistic or out of touch? Look, I think there's a few things. One thing is, obviously, you need to identify the startups where in an area of expert that you are basically understand. And this kind of matchmaking process is very important. If you ask me to advise a startup in a field that I don't know, quantum computing, right, for example, I have no idea anything about quantum computing. So it will be very tough for me to give valuable advice beyond something generic. And so I think the first step is to really identify areas where you've seen different models working or not working, right? And also as, as a mentor, like, you know, I've been in Plug and Play for about five years. So you go every year for a batch of startups and you start seeing certain patterns, especially across certain se sectors. This is where you can be more helpful. Let's say I've seen a lot of insurtechs, our founders in insurtech startups, but also because I mentee a few, right? So this is an area where I feel fairly comfortable that I know which models are there, et cetera, et cetera. And similar happens with investors. So I think that's one. Obviously, two is to obviously be humble. And, and I think that's kind of the, the startup mentality, right? Nobody is arrogant in terms of knows it all because we all know that it's, it's a constant experimentation and models that might not have worked in the past will be unicorn in the future. So that kind of mindset has to be there. And I think the third one is the when you, instead of telling what people, what people should do, ask them questions. And I think this is very important. It makes people reflect. Yeah, and, and the third one I was saying is that instead of telling startup founders what they should be doing, because ask them good questions. A good question will make them reflect. And I think your main objective as a mentor is to make sure that the founder arrives at the right answer by himself. And, and that process can be done only if you ask him a question and the and the person starts thinking. This is very important because in that case, you are not appearing in as you know antagonistic, as I said, or arrogant or anything like that, but you are just basically asking questions. So I think I found that that technique quite useful for, for people to, to get them. And also they went through the process. So that, that usually works in my opinion. Great. And for the founder side, obviously they are always getting advice from everybody. 
advice from VCs, getting prospective VCs and investors, employees, parents, relationship partner. How should a founder prioritize and sort through all the different types of advice? I think majority of the founders, they do have some sort of gut feeling of what they, which direction they want to go. And that is important, right? I would not underestimate that because sometimes we're in a, in a field of technology where we are creating something that was not there before. So sometimes also your data might lie because I just give you, a, you know, an example. You might go and do a survey of customers and uh, after the sur- survey may result in saying, look, I don't need it. But why I don't need it? Because they never seen it before, right? It's like if you go and ask before uh, the first iPhone whether people would be okay with a phone without any any buttons, and they probably would say no. Why? I want I want my my keyboard. <laughs> why? Because they never seen it. They never know how user friendly it is. And this is a, also a mistake. So it needs to be very careful in not falling into that mistake. So to go back to your question is you need to know you have that gut feeling. But obviously, take into account feedback. And what is even more important is that if the feedback becomes repetitive, that's what I always advise. Write your feedback down, especially with investors. You do your pitch, pitch to 50, 60, 70 investors. If you see that certain feedback becomes repetitive, then maybe there's a problem. Or maybe there, you need to change your pitch or maybe you need to change your business model. And this is what you need to be really you know, looking out, out after. Yeah, that's so true. And how should a founder or how do you react to negative feedback? So sometimes people give feedback and it's very poorly worded or it's kind of irritating or super negative and it just frustrates me to no end, right? And obviously that's on them to some extent in terms of how they chose to deliver it intentionally or unintentionally. How should a founder like kind of like manage their own you know, psychology and saying like hearing negative feedback or negative tone feedback? Well, look, I mean, I think feedback is extremely important. Let's just be honest. You will still be irritated when somebody tells you that your startup is shit. <laughs> Sorry for the, for the term. Because it's your baby, right? You will still be irritated about that. But on the other hand, you need to, to be smart enough and rational enough to try to kind of get the message, the main key message out of the feedback and uh, not take it personally. So obviously it's tough. It's tough, especially if you are hear constant rejections. But what helps also, what one advice is that instead of just hearing the rejection, ask questions back and say, okay, but why do you think so? What made you come to that conclusion? If you try to go through somebody else's thought process, then you might understand that actually it might not be even your startup might not be the problem. It might be the problem that the investor is just not comfortable with that sector because they haven't invested before. So it's very important that you really try to understand the thought process. And once you understand that thought process, so I would say majority of the cases might not be even your fault. It's just no, no fit between the parties. Thanks so much for that. And it's something to tie things off here. Obviously, you've gone through a lot of positive feedback and a lot of negative feedback over the years. And you've also gone through good times as well as bad times. Could you share with us with a time where you had to be brave? Yeah, look, uh, I, I think we definitely went through, uh, I would say, last mo- last year was a very tough year for us. So, well, Parsonation is a, is, a, is a company which is highly exposed towards entertainment and hospitality sectors. Obviously, with the pandemic, which was something that nobody could have anticipated, we obviously found ourselves in a very tough spot when 
The year before, we just closed our Series B round with Traveloka and SPH and riding the wave up and increasing our revenue month on month and, and everything was going great. And then suddenly in the month of, uh, I think it was March uh, last year, everything dropped to, to almost zero. And that's where it was some tough spots for us because we had to to be brave, to be able to continue the business. Because one of the obviously suggestions on the tables was just to hibernate and let everybody go, hibernate, keep the money in the bank and wait until the, the whole crisis and pandemic passes by. For me, that was not never really an option because I thought that the, the company is made out of people. If we let everybody go and hibernate, we will lose our best people. And once you lose your best people, you lose basically everything. So for me, it was... You can never save enough money, but you need to start generating new revenue streams. And this is what I think, you know, I had to be brave to kind of put my foot down and say, no, we are not going to hibernate. We are going to continue and we are going to try to make money again in, in, in new ways. And, and I think this made the company survive. This made the company survive because we came up with a new product, which was a wearable that can track your body temperature, which was very COVID-friendly. And we, we launched it on Indiegogo and it was a success. And then we raised some more funds around that product and managed to, to keep on going. Right? So again, it's a moment where anything could have happened and I could have taken the wrong decision, but uh, I felt that uh, you, you need to be brave enough to basically follow what you believe in and, uh, and not let your main people go. Wow, that was a tough one, I'm sure. Lots of people giving you lots of different advice during the pandemic. And everyone was kind of scrambling and trying to figure it out all at the same time. When it comes to a crisis, how much should a founder-CEO solicit that internal piece? Obviously, there's like the VCs who you're working with at that board level. And obviously, there's an executives that you're working with and figure out the plan. How should a founder CEO think about messaging, I guess, or communicating with the rest of the company? What are the key things that you would think about from your perspective? Recently, I read a lot of books around it. And, uh, you know, I think one of the books was saying is that if you have a mature organization, if you have an organization of, uh, well, mature in the sense that your, your employees are, are rock stars and they are great. So the, then in that case, the more honest you are, the better it is. Because they will be they will understand and they will uh, try to support and actually it's better to be more transparent than less transparent. Obviously, that is not always the case. You might have a team of people that not everybody is um, to that level of standard. I think it's uh, it's it's a check and balance. I always believe in being transparent, obviously, but on the other hand, you know you cannot be hundred percent transparent in everything you goes because you are the one that is eventually carrying that weight, and you cannot pass everything on everybody else because and I've seen that personally because sometimes when I pass that weight that you're carrying as a founder to somebody people just crack and they cannot mentally live with it example you're a founder you know you have like two three weeks runway left this is a major burden on you now if you give that burden to an employee even if he is a senior guy he might not be mentally able to to live with that because he's oh my god what's going to happen so so i would say it's uh, but on the other hand there's certain things that people need to know if you're if you're struggling if your business is not going well you need to you need to give signals to your people and make sure that they understand what they're going into right on the other hand is also not right is to completely isolate yourself and keep your problems and then not share them so again it's a it's a very tight balance 
And it's a balance between being retaining people on a certain case and making sure they don't crack. But on the other hand, sharing the information and making sure they know what they're going for and what they need to do and when they need to step up. So I don't think there is like an exact formula how you balance between the two. And it also depends this is another book, The Wartime CEO and The Peacetime CEO, right? It also depends in which circumstance you are. If you're in a peacetime, you can be a bit more easygoing. If you are in a wartime, you just need to be very careful. And sometimes it gets really tough. So I'm wondering, you know, if you could travel back in time 10 years, back to 2011, right before you set off to build out your startups uh, that you have built up over time, what advice would you have given yourself over coffee? Well, I think it's a very tough question. So I think one of the key mistakes I've done probably in my first startup is that I was not the one in charge of fundraising. And I think that was a big mistake. I think as a, as a CEO and founder, you will need, you need to be in charge of fundraising. And I think that was one of the reasons why at the event, the first startup, we didn't manage to raise enough capital. That's definitely one, one recommendation I would give myself. The second one, which probably is think about a, a, an area where the market size is extremely big. So one of the mistakes that a lot of founders do is that they think that everything is a big market size, but that's very not true, and especially in Southeast Asia. So, and the same was in my case, I was thinking, wow, this is a big market size. But then once you really start digging deeper and deeper and deeper, you start realizing, okay, this is not addressable, this is not addressable, and then it shrinks. And as a startup, and especially if you want to grow to, to become a unicorn, market size very, very important. The third one is, is also on scalability. I think a lot of founders in this region, which is quite normal, tend to focus on service-oriented startups rather than product-oriented startups. And it's normal because, uh, you know, in places like, for example, Indonesia, you know, everybody wants a service, right? They don't want to do self-service. But in, eventually you'll realize that that will become a major bottleneck down the line. Even if you are successful, even if you can make a few million dollars in revenue a year, how do you scale farther? So think more product rather than service, even though maybe the market is not ready, but it will catch up. So those are the few things that I would probably tell myself and repeat myself several times. Yeah, so it's 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 really trying to to you know those probably are the three main things, and it's really trying to you know shorten that cycle from where you where you started and where you be. Uh, you know how long is that time to success? I'll probably you know could have done a lot better if those things were being written in my head back in the days. So I wish I could have meet me ten years <laughs> more mature in that sense. The three big teams that I heard from you was firstly, really the first part about your journey from being a management consultant in Europe to being a founder in Asia, not just in your first company, but also eventually a second company. And I really thank you so much for sharing, especially about the struggles of the first startup that helped you basically make you a better founder today, but also allows you to share that true story about you actually having to go back to a full-time job after being your first-time founder and using that set of experiences and holiday to kind of like get yourself stronger for the second one. And I think that's a strong story in itself because I think a lot of founders really see that glossy like hockey stick curve, right? Like everybody nails it on your first startup like Mark Zuckerberg and at least the public perception about Mark Zuckerberg, to be honest. And I think that's an interesting dynamic to share. And the second part, of course, is thank you for a lot of the technical advice around how founders should be thinking about not only getting advice, how to prioritize advice, and conversely on the other side, how 
mentors and other founders can give advice or be present for other founders as well. So there's a lot of that dynamic around how to think, how to prioritize your time, how to make decisions. And a lot of that was birthed uh, from your experience as a founder. The third thing that I really enjoyed you sharing, of course, was everything that you talked about in terms of the nuts and bolts, I would say, of expansion, uh, market expansion, unit economics, what you really need to build. It's true because I think we focus on what we're building right now and we're not necessarily thinking about a TAM, the total addressable market. We're not thinking about making sure our first market is locked in and has the unit economics squared away. And that's really good advice for everybody to be mindful for in the future. Thank you so much, Ilya, for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for allowing me to share. It was a great chat. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.